33 minutes. Let's see how this shit panned out, y'all. Before we get started, I want to give you a reason up front to stick around for the next 10 episodes, as well as offer a warning. We are going to expose, using secret undercover recordings, how the Federal Bureau of Investigation infiltrated and undermined the racial justice movement during the summer of 2020. This is not a story the FBI once told. And these episodes contain explicit language and descriptions of violence and death. Some listeners may find the show disturbing. I want to take you back to the summer of 2020. The pandemic is here and a lot is still really unknown. For months, millions of Americans have been out of work, locked up in their homes, and left deeply uncertain about the future. The nation is a tinderbox of anger. Racial justice activists have come out in force in cities nationwide to protest against police brutality, resulting in an unprecedented explosion of activism around the broader Black Lives Matter movement. Right-wing activists hit the streets too as counter-protesters. Groups ranging from pro-police demonstrators to violent street thugs like the Proud Boys and militia groups like the Oath Keepers. It will turn the war. Some of the encounters turn violent. In turn, anti-fascist activists, often dressed in black and referred to as Antifa, begin meeting right-wing violence with force of their own. The clashes result in the kind of political violence Americans haven't seen in decades. The city became a war zone. Large groups torched police cruisers as officers fired back with rubber bullets. Violence involving the Proud Boys and leftist Antifa in Portland, Oregon in recent weeks. The president has been calling for law and order, but many say he is fueling the flames. Lots of people on the right, from President Donald Trump in the Oval Office to Tucker Carlson on Fox News, they start calling out Antifa, painting them as militarized extremists who want nothing more than to kill cops and burn America to the ground. Black Lives Matter Antifa is going to grow like ISIS did in the Middle East. Violent young men with guns will be in charge. You will not want to live here when that happens. According to President Trump, anti-fascist activists aren't simply there to stop violent right-wing extremists and fascists. No, these Antifa guys, they're the real threat. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper says that Trump suggested that the U.S. military shoot Black Lives Matter protesters outside of the White House. If you remember, this public debate gets pretty ridiculous. Soup. And they throw the cans of soup. That's better than a brick because you can't throw a brick. It's too heavy. But a can of soup, you can really put some power into that, right? People on the left are practically screaming. This is all a distraction. Distraction from the very real issues of police brutality against black people. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not yeah. listen. That's what it is to the FBI. FBI. It's FBI. All the while, demonstrators are marching and COVID is raging. The economy is falling apart. People are getting shot. 
and nobody knows what's going to happen next. Plus, there's this boogeyman hiding behind every corner. He's playing into the antibody and the boogeyman making behind these protests. You know, Fox News is still running riot porn, acting like the riots are still happening today. But Antifa is just sort of this this abstract boogeyman word that appear on the other side. You can clearly I see it. What happened? I can tell you is we're not the evil boogeyman that people think we are. What are you? People that care about our country. But what if I were to tell you there is an Antifa boogeyman? He was real. He drove a silver hearse. And the back of that hearse was filled with guns. Lots and lots of guns. In the summer of 2020, he burned into town. I don't give a fuck about the cops and I don't care about the police. I do not agree nor accept fascism. But understand this. If you come to me fucked up, I'm gonna fuck you up. Play stupid games and stupid prizes. I'm Trevor Aarons. <laughs> I heart podcast. This is Alphabet boys are federal agents or informants working for the alphabet agencies, FBI, CIA, DEA, ATF, national law enforcement and intelligence agencies that run around the country and the world. <laughs> These agencies aren't interested in small cases either. We're talking about really, really big cases. Some of the biggest attacks against the United States, criminal organizations, terrorists, etc. For about as long as I've been a journalist, I've covered the way that these alphabet agencies use undercover agents and informants to orchestrate so-called sting operations, where an undercover agent pretends to be a criminal, a terrorist, a drug dealer, an arms trader, a corrupt lobbyist, a money launderer, and on and on. We've largely come to accept undercover stings as legitimate and necessary. It wasn't so long ago that many Americans found these techniques outrageous. The way they appear to create crimes and entrap people in criminal plots, made possible only by aggressive undercover federal agents. Each season of Alphabet Boys will take you inside one of these investigations. It's the FBI, sometimes you gotta grab the little guy to go after the big guy. You'll hear undercover recordings that were kept secret until now. This reference case number 415, Sandy Charlie, New York, 300851. Okay, so you do personal security all over the world. You're connected to all these different people. You'll meet supposed terrorists, arms dealers, and drug runners. And you have somebody call you and say, can you get grenades and guns for this guy in Colombia? And you'll discover that while many of these cases have plenty of danger and intrigue, I just drove for eight hours and then I just 
stuck my gun in the face of a federal agent. They also introduced so much absurdity. I got back off a bullying about a month ago and my hip is shattered. My integration is right in Jedi mind school. And it's hard not to wonder. I'll be polite and professional. Are America's top cops catching real criminals? But I have a plan to kill everybody in the fucking room if need be. Or are they creating them? There's something you need. This is season one, Trojan Hearse, episode one, Summer Fringe. The protests in Denver continue as hundreds of protesters have gathered in front of the state capitol tonight. Of all the racial justice demonstrations around the country in the summer of 2020, Denver, Colorado saw some of the biggest, most intense protests. We've been watching as fences are smashed, torn down, protesters starting fires and building umbrella barricades. This is a live look at downtown Denver where we have seen this clash happening now for about the last- Thousands demonstrate outside the Colorado State Capitol, chanting a phrase synonymous with young black men dying at the hands of police officers. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Some of the Denver protests become violent and destructive. The police fire pepper spray and rubber bullets into the crowds, injuring dozens. But the protesters just keep coming out Undaunted. Day 10 of protests across Denver, nearly a week after police used tear gas and pepper balls to disperse protesters outside. And then one night, a new guy shows up at the protest. He's a white guy wearing military fatigues with patches and stripes that he claimed to have earned fighting the Islamic State with ISIS in Iraq and Syria. He has a cigar dangling from his lips, and the car he drives is unmistakable. It's a silver hearse, the sticker on the back window reading Peshmerga, the Kurdish military force. And inside this hearse was like a lot of guns, you know, like AR-15s and all other kind of shit. <coughs> this is Zeb Hall. He was a regular at the Denver protests. Yeah, it was just this badass dude, you know, talking about he worked in the foreign military. He was for the Black Lives Matter movement. He just seemed like some authoritarian figure, you know, this powerful figure that was there. He was very convincing. But he did explain, you know, he was part of like uh, bad biker gangs, you know, he had committed a ton of violence, you know, but, you know, he was for this BLM movement. This dude was like a bad motherfucker. This bad motherfucker also introduces himself to another Denver organizer, Trey Quinn. It's like, I've done this and that. I was in the PKK and the French Foreign Legion and so on and yada, yada, yada. We ran night protests every night. And so we see him a bunch, and he approaches us every single time from that point on. Walked up with a body cam on me. And here's another regular at the Denver protest, Bryce Shelby. I didn't think nothing about the body cam in hindsight, just because I just, I don't know. There, there, I, there was just a lot of things going on, I guess. He remembers the Hearst dude walking around with a GoPro camera strapped to his chest. It was strange. I guess he de-escalated any type of um, suspicion because he started like flashing his prison badge. So, yeah, I, you know what I mean? Like, okay, he's not, this guy ain't a fan. He walk around with a prison badge. Um, 
Yeah. Around the time this mysterious character starts showing up, the protests in Denver are stagnating. They're becoming this cat and mouse game between demonstrators and cops. People coming out in mostly peaceful ways. Cops coming out with riot gear and overwhelming force. People like Zeb, Trey, and Bryce, they're getting frustrated. Something more needs to happen. Something new. And then, something new does happen. I hate this guy, you know, he wants to train people how to, you know, defend themselves and use the weapons, and he just showed me how to do it as well. The guy with real military experience is here. He's a commanding presence. He's got a hearse full of guns. He's going to take things to the next level. That's after the break. We live in a very divided country right now, and that's not news. Everyone knows it. We talk about it over dinner, cable news, on social media. But this division is something that really bothers Denver racial justice activist Zeb Hall. He thinks it's really a distraction. We're not focusing on how our government is abusing all of us. They're so good at dividing us. So good at it that we can't acknowledge things that happen to other people. We can't accept anyone stepping out to some degree from the group thing. And that enables them to continue this mass surveillance. Instead, Zeb says, we sit at home watching cops and robbers shows with clear good guys and unambiguous bad guys. The portrait of a just and fair American criminal justice system that has never really existed. Look at CBS, they have like over a million police officer shows. All these other like major networks, so we know the networks cater them. They can look real good. Hell, they could be listening here. They could be in my fucking TV. The apparatus is that powerful. So yeah, Zeb, he's pretty skeptical of the U.S. government. And as a black man, Zeb's pretty tired of hearing about our racial divide. In his view, the U.S. government and the country's most powerful corporations encourage the racial division we now have so that poor white people and poor black people can't form the political alliance they naturally should. Well, I understand, you know, me being black in this system, you know, but like this, yeah, okay, there's white privilege, but we're led to believe that it's this all-powerful weapon like white people don't have to deal with it. And that is part of the thing that's used to divide us. But I dare someone to go in the middle of fucking Arkansas to a white community who lost their factory and say, hey, you're entitled. You've got this privilege. But we're made to think that way. They're dealing with the same shit. People in the inner city, they're fucked up. They're on drugs also. They're living in poverty. But we're made to think those white people in rural areas are constantly the enemy. They're living in a fucking hell as well. Same fucking hell as us. But we are told that the other side is fucking terrible. Zeb, whose full name is Zebedias, wasn't always this caustic. His anger really set in a couple of years ago, in early 2020, when the pandemic started. He saw how people on the economic edge, like him, suffered. Job losses, poor health care, mounting debts, and anxieties about eviction. At the same time, Zeb saw affluent Americans adapting to the pandemic with ease, working remotely, deliveries from Amazon in their local grocery store, rush fenced-in backyards to get fresh air, iPads and new laptops for their kids to use for remote schooling. The pandemic, in Zev's view, they bear the inequities in America. Some of us had everything. 
while others of us were missed paycheck away from poverty. We're all in danger. We're all in danger. And that is serious. I think in the right ways, I have become more radicalized because I care more about people. Seb was born in 1984. His parents were in high school and his mom got pregnant with him. And then his dad skipped town. So Zev's childhood was tumultuous. He lived with his grandmother for a bit in California when he was a small boy, and he eventually moved to North Carolina when his mother married a U.S. Marine. In his 20s, Zev had a serious girlfriend in North Carolina, and she decided to move to Denver. So Zev followed, and he and his girlfriend got married. I got here shockingly, unexpectedly, on 420, and uh, she takes me downtown in Denver, and I'm seeing all these people smoking weed. They're all going to get arrested. They're all going to get arrested. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I'm freaking out. Then I got pulled over by a cop in October of uh, 2012, and uh, he asked, you got any drugs in the car? I'm like, I've got some marijuana, sir. Okay, you got any drugs in the car? I've got this weed, and I'm freaking out. He says, no, if you have any real drugs, we're not worried about it. like, oh, no, I do not, sir. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was real funny, real funny. But that's how I got here. Uh, uh, you know, we uh, had a daughter along the way. She has our other two kids uh, as well, which is a big story on the side. But um, yeah, that's how I got here. How I got here. Zeb glosses over this part a bit. He and his now ex-wife, Bridget, had a daughter, as Zeb mentioned. But they were living in poverty and didn't want to subject their daughter to such a difficult life. So Zeb's mother and stepfather in North Carolina, who were well off by comparison, agreed to take care of the girl. Zeb travels back regularly to visit and tries to be there for big moments. Birthdays, first days of school, major holidays. It was around 2015 when his daughter was born. That's when Zeb began to feel America had become fundamentally unfair, that rich people were getting richer, and that no matter how hard he worked, he was getting poorer. He couldn't even support his daughter. The American system seemed broken. Zeb wasn't the first person to feel disillusioned with the American promise, but he and others were seeing how body camera and cell phone footage had created a near constant stream of news stories about black people dying at the hands of police officers nationwide. Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Jameer Rice, Freddie Gray, Breonna Taylor, <coughs> the list goes on. In Colorado, in 2019, there was Elijah McClain. A 23-year-old who died after being arrested by Aurora police. Police say Elijah McClain was wearing a ski mask, acting agitated, and ignored officers' commands. Elijah was, by all accounts, an introverted, sensitive 23-year-old. He worked as a massage therapist and taught himself to play guitar and violin. Elijah would often play music at animal shelters to help calm the stray cats and dogs. Elijah also suffered from anemia, and so he'd wear an open-faced ski mask, even during the summer in Colorado, in order to stay warm. On the evening of August 24, 2019, Elijah walked from his apartment to a convenience store in Aurora, a suburb just outside Denver. A resident there called 911 and reported a man wearing a ski mask. Elijah looks sketchy, the 911 caller said, then added, he might be a good person or a bad person. Three cops responding to this call stopped Elijah as he was walking back to his apartment. The cops claimed Elijah resisted arrest and reach for one of the officer's guns. It's hard to know what's true. 
the video of the initial encounter is shaky and unclear. The body camera of another police officer recorded from the point that Elijah was already on the ground. He started it as he, he reached for a rose's gun. That's one of the officers claiming that Elijah reached for a gun. As you can hear, Elijah came down to the ground, pleading to be let go. The officers speculated that Elijah was on drugs, but Elijah kept telling them that he wasn't on drugs, and that he wasn't trying to resist. I can't breathe. I have my ID right here. That's what Elijah tells the officers. At the time, Elijah was handcuffed behind his back, and one of the officers was applying a chokehold to his neck. I'm just different, Elijah told the officers, as a way to explain why they might have thought his behavior was odd, but also to assure them that he wasn't violent. He wasn't trying to resist. He kept saying that to the cop. Paramedics then arrived on the scene and injected Elijah with 500 milligrams of ketamine and sedative. That dosage would have been excessive for a 200-pound man. Elijah was just 140 pounds. His pulse stopped, and he was taken to the hospital. Three days later, Elijah was pronounced brain dead and taken off life support. Elijah's death sparked outrage in Denver. People poured into the streets to protest. One of the first events I went to was uh, shortly after the murder of Elijah McClain. Zeb, angered about Elijah's senseless killing, was among them. He'd never been politically active before. You know, I went there and uh, saw his, his mother and a few, bunch of other people, and uh, everyone was hurt. You know, uh, we knew what was wrong. In February 2020, after the demonstrations for Elijah McClain began to fizzle out, public officials announced they would investigate the police response. It was something, sure, but there wasn't a lot of faith that the police officers and paramedics responsible for Elijah's death would be held accountable. Then, three months later, on May 25th, 2020, a white police officer in Minneapolis named Derek Chauvin arrests a black man named George Floyd on suspicion that he had used a counterfeit $20 bill. Chauvin restrains Floyd on the concrete street during the arrest, and he places his knee directly on Floyd's neck for approximately nine minutes. And he murders George Floyd. Good evening, everyone. We're coming on the air with the latest on the wave of protests and uh, unrest taking place at this hour across the country. Outrage at the death of George Floyd, an African-American man. In Denver, Floyd's death is like gasoline thrown on the warm embers of anger over Elijah McClain. Thousands of people protest in the streets, animated by both men's untimely deaths at the hands of police officers. And the Denver area police response to the demonstrations was brutal. In June, dozens of people gather in Aurora's public square for Elijah McClain. They call it the violin vigil, as many of the demonstrators play violins in Elijah's honor. The police, dressed in riot gear, storm into the demonstration and disperse the crowd with violent shoves and full volume streams of pepper spray. <laughs> During other demonstrations, police in the Denver area fire pepper balls and rubber bullets. It's like fucking wild. 
out there with my camera and just I never take the photos, you know, before I just pick up a hobby at the time. Then Paul had purchased a camera to document the project. It was crazy, you know, I'm just, you know, taking pictures of seeing this fire in Civic Center Park and then it's kind of like a saving private Ryan moment. Zeb isn't quite sure what happened next. Did a rubber bullet hit him in the head? Or did he pass out after being overwhelmed with pepper spray and then smack his head on the concrete? I'm like, shh. You just like kind of fucked out. Those are people picked me up off the ground and they brought me, you know, took me away, put some, uh, I think it was milk in my eyes and shit, and uh, kind of brought me back too. But I was having issues after that. My head was hurting so bad and I wasn't able to sleep well. Um, I was just like sporadic, like emotional, like losing my mind, you know, I had to get, I think it was a CAT scan, you know, uh, they almost told me to like stop driving at one point. They were really concerned. Um, memory was off a little bit, you know, to some degree. Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty rough. From that point on, Deb admits, he's not in his right mind. He's taken a hard hit to the head. He feels traumatized by the police response to the protests, but he doesn't want to quit feels like they're on the edge of something big. Maybe the system could be reformed if enough people come out and speak up. He's too far in. Zeb can't stop now. And this is about the time that a man arrives in Denver, driving up to a protest in a silver hearse filled with guns. One of the primary organizers of the Denver racial justice protests is Trey Quinn, a tall black man who wears a beard and large green glasses. Trey identifies as a black nationalist. Through his activism, he's trying to promote organizations and causes that invest directly in black communities in Colorado. What we were asking for is the same type of investment in the community that would give us the same type of ownership in a city that other communities had, you know, People can look at, you know, the, the skyline and they see all these buildings and none of those buildings provide any sort of wealth to black culture, but they provide wealth to these other cultures because they have investments in that. And we wanted to let people know this is what is really needed for us to get out of our situation. Since you want to help us so much, this is actually what we need. And so that was my message. Trey dislikes that the protests in Denver and others around the country are being described as Black Lives Matter protests. Black Lives Matter is largely a decentralized movement, and the term became a catch-all phrase for news media worldwide. Any racial justice protest in America was described as a Black Lives Matter, or BLM, demonstration. But at the same time, a number of groups began raising money under BLM. And in Trey's view, very little of this money is being invested in Black communities. As Trey sees it, it's all a scam. They extract wealth from us via the donations that we get from these well-meaning white liberals who want to give us money, who want to stay out of it, but want to help out. They see that as a cash cow. And so they became a barrier over top of us, a big fat bubble layer to catch all of that money before it reached us so that they could decide who to give it to, which obviously wasn't us. Besides all that, Trey has some real practical things to sort out on the ground. The police have established a reputation in and around Denver for responding to demonstrators with force, 
like they did on June 29, 2020, during the violin vigil for Elijah McClain. It's now mid-July, and Trey has gathered a bunch of demonstrators to teach them how to move together in a formation in order to escape safely from a charging line of police officers dressed in riot gear. The cops come in lines like stormtroopers, and so what they try to do is they'll pick a person off by separating the group with their line. And so I started teaching these people how to create, uh, you know, like a Spartan phalanx ring, essentially teaching them how the crescent moon and how to like open up in like a wide oval so that they can move their way out of a situation. And so if everyone links arms and everyone creates a crescent moon, it prevents the cops from wanting to go into the group and move people out because now they see that they are in danger. As Trey is describing how to employ this defensive tactic during a demonstration, a couple of other activists show up with this new guy. He'd driven up in a silver hearse. He's a white guy in military fatigues. And so they're like, hey, this guy's really, really dope. He's legit. He knows his shit. You should let him sit in and he could probably help you out. And so he comes in and essentially he's really pushy, trying to like give directions and trying to like, you know, like put himself at the forefront. To Trey, this guy's a brash know-it-all who's ready to take charge. And he looks like a biker. And Trey, he doesn't trust bikers. And I usually approach dudes who look like bikers in these groups because I just need to know, one, are you armed? So that I can keep an eye on you until I know that you're, quote unquote, one of us or whatever, you know, the term could be. But this biker guy, he's got the goods. He's like, I got guys all around here videotaping. They'll give us a call as soon as the cops start moving around the corner, which they did. They let us know. By providing information about where the police were, information that turned out to be accurate, this guy quickly establishes credibility among the demonstrators. They start to trust him. And as far as Trey remembers, this is also around the time that Zeb Hall comes on the scene. Zeb was known for his impassioned and fiery speeches during demonstrations. At one of the demonstrations, Zeb meets the guy driving the silver hearse, the mysterious man who appears to be taking charge of the demonstrators. He's leading protests, organizing people, and drawing up plans. Zeb is in awe of him. He seems like a guy who can make stuff happen. He has military training. He speaks with a raspy voice of dominance. His shirt fits tight around his large biceps. It's like he has testosterone dripping from his pores. He has guns. A lot of guns. He was there. I'm like, yo, this dude has a shit ton of guns in his car. So my thing is, he worked for a foreign military. He said the United States government knew it. So maybe this guy's not had guns at that time. Zeb is enthralled with this mysterious guy. He's experienced on the battlefield, and he has expertise with weapons. Zeb exchanges phone numbers with him, and they agree to stay in touch. Yeah, see you at the next protest, see you around. Uh, I'll contact you, you know. I'll text you if I find out if this is going on or this thing. Zeb's new friend doesn't waste any time contacting him. He tells Zeb that the protests are reaching a tipping point, and that violence is coming. It's inevitable. The way I look at it is like, shit has to happen, it has to happen. Shit has to happen, he says to Zeb. How extreme do you expect it? Would you want it to go? This guy, he's about to take the racial justice protest in Denver, a violent step forward. It's time to shoot the rich, 
themselves up. It's time to take down buildings. It's time to burn down the whole system. I don't give a fuck about going to prison. I don't give a fuck about getting killed because believe me, I fought ISIS for Daesh. I fought Al Qaeda. I fought Hubble Shabi. I fought in Iraq and I fought in Syria. I've trained real Antifa freedom fighters in both those regions. And I am certainly not fucking scared of you. Who is this man? That's in the next episode. This is Trojan Hearse, season one of Alpha Wars. Alphabet Boys is a production of Western Sound and iHeart Podcasts. The show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Trevor Aronson. For more information about this series, or to drop us a tip, head to our website, alphabetboys.xyz. You can contact me on Twitter or Instagram, at Trevor Aronson. We believe this story is important and could result in changes to FBI oversight and public policy. But to have impact, people need to hear this story. So we need your help. First, tell your friends about the show. Personal recommendations are the best recommendations. Second, spread the word on social media. At alphabetboys.xyz, you'll find FBI undercover recordings and secret documents. You can share stuff the government never wanted public. Third, help us ride the algorithms by leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. That helps other people find us. And thanks for listening. And now for today's Roblox winter weather alert, my heartland on Roblox has been walloped by a winter snowstorm. It is a winter wonderland. You can now ice skate at State Farm Park. In State Farm Neighborhood, you can compete in snowball fights, grab a hot cocoa and cookies, and more. There's also special events from your favorite artists and podcasters all month, along with scavenger hunts, exclusive content, and unique items. So enjoy the festive winter weather at iHeartLand on Roblox. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash iHeartLand today. On the new podcast, The Turning, Room of Mirrors, we look beneath the delicate veneer of American ballet and the culture formed by its most influential figure, George Balanchine. He used to say, what are you looking at, dear? You can't see you, only I can see you. What you're doing is larger than yourself, almost like a religion. Like, he was a god. Listen to The Turning, Room of Mirrors on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can think of the nation as a place with a border, a set of laws, flags, people, but really, a nation needs a story, a story to tie the whole thing together. So what to do then about the inconvenient parts of the nation's past, the parts that call the whole thing into question? On the new season of White Lies, we tell a story about immigration, about indefinite detention, and about how sometimes it's the lies that bind us together. Listen to the White Lies podcast from NPR within the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast. I didn't know much about him, but he drove a hearse. And inside his hearse was like a lot of guns, you know, like AR-15s and all other kind of shit. And I had never held one of those before in my life, and I held it. And I was like, oh shit, I'm pro-gun and everything, but I've never held anything like that. Yeah, it was just this badass dude, you know, talking about he worked in a foreign military. He was for the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it just seemed interesting, you know. In August 2020, with millions of Americans protesting across the country, activist Zeb Hall invites a guy he's met at one of the demonstrations 
to his apartment in Denver to talk about plans for the future. The way I look at it is like, shit has to happen, it has to happen. Just like you said, I mean, how extreme do you expect it? To where you want it to go? If you were to tell that to your people, how would you say, say that I'm one of your people, right? How would you say it? To me, I'm, I'm fundamental. Yeah. I, I'm fundamental. I like about the currency. Yeah. To life itself. There's nothing you can tell me to shock me. This guy had shown up on the scene in Denver driving a silver hearse filled with weapons. He claims to have been a soldier for the French Foreign Legion and the Peshmerga, the Kurdish military force in Iraq. He even says he's killed ISIS terrorists on the battlefield. Zeb Hall's been involved in the demonstrations for a couple of months at this point. He's seen peaceful protesters attacked by police. He suffered a head injury. He's growing more and more concerned about black people being attacked and killed by cops. And he thinks that he and others need to learn to defend themselves. So Zeb, sitting in his living room with this guy, asks him, can you teach me how to fight? But uh, the thing is this. My type of training that I do is anything from like I teach how to shoot a gun to, you know, yeah, and I found that all the way to like blowing up fucking buildings and world warfare tactics to sabotage. Do you want to learn how to just you know shoot a gun, cool, throw somebody around with people, or do you want to go yeah, all the way up, all the way up town? Do you want to learn to shoot a gun and throw someone around? Or do you want to go all the way uptown? Zeb says he wants to go all the way uptown. Appearing to mean, quote, like blowing up fucking buildings and guerrilla warfare tactics and sabotage. We need to know every bit of this. So here's a question then. So when I was in Syria, let me explain this way. When I was in Syria and Iraq, we had a lot of anti-Christ that came up there, and I was one of the instructors of the Red Star Brigade, they're the one who taught them the rural warfare tactics, they taught them IEDs, all this crazy shit. I had no problem with getting into that type of training, but I had to make sure that that's what you want to do, that you want to learn the curriculum of correct. Yes, that's what we So if that's what you want to do, then, you know. That's what I want to do, Zeb says. I'm Trevor Aronson from Western Sound My Heart Podcast. This is Alphabet Wars. Episode two, all the way uptown. So who is this guy, this real deal Antifa militant, the guy with the silver hearse and weapons, who's gonna take things in Denver to the next level? I spent a lot of time reporting this out, pulling court records and police reports, files from the prison system, talking to people who knew him in the United States and the Middle East, and chasing down every lead I could find. I discovered that his full name is Michael Adam Windecker II, though he goes by Mickey. Born in Colorado, he's in his late 40s, stands five foot seven, has a ruddy complexion and a stocky frame. In photos when he was younger, Mickey was slender and toned. In his middle age, he's well with a paunch, 
but he's still strong with big biceps and wide knuckles and would have little difficulty knocking out a few of your teeth. Mickey has got a history in foreign militaries and in the U.S. criminal justice system. Arrests in Colorado, Nevada, Texas, and Florida. His offenses include firearms charges, menacing with a weapon, and sexual assault. In Mickey's telling of Mickey's story, he's the well-off son of an emotionally negligent mother and a committed father who was a savvy businessman. So my mom, my mom's side of the family, we're kind of like reptiles. Like once you hatch, you're pretty much out of the nest. It's like, we don't take care of the book yourself. I really didn't have a lot of communication or a lot of history with my mom. So we didn't bond very well. Mickey wouldn't sit down for an interview with me. But in investigating him, I found hours of recordings of him. Some are, or have been, on social media, like this video. My dad owned two businesses. He actually owned a cab company locally here in Colorado, and he actually owned a carnival and a couple other businesses. So we had a shitload of money. My dad was my, my superhero because he wasn't perfect, but he did teach me a lot of life skill shit as I was growing up. As a young man, Mickey wanted adventure. And so, at 19 years old, he tells of going to France to join the Foreign Legion, the world-famous French military unit that accepts foreign volunteers. This would have been around 1994. And I went to a place called the Citadel. They took me to a selection. They took me to Paris to Fort de Nogent. Uh, there's some more selection. And they took me to Amman near Marseille to do my uh, getting into the Foreign Legion. And uh, so, long story short, as I'm waiting, you know, you have to go out there on the flight deck. A Middle Eastern guy who was also trying to volunteer in the French Foreign Legion started to harass and disrespect me. Well, at the time I was 19 years old, and I didn't take kind of being disrespected. So I uh, beat the shit out of the guy, and a couple of corporal chefs and a corporal came up there and they grabbed me. And they were like, what the fuck? We can't have that. Or, can't, can't be attacking so they got me a train ticket they paid me while i was there they stuck me in a train went back to paris and then after that i came back to the united states after mickey returned to the united states he worked a variety of odd jobs took some community college courses and traveled around and in his telling he was something of a citizen warrior out there looking to help the good guys in 2005 he was in hollywood florida just north of miami when he saw a crime in progress. A couple of bad guys had just robbed a pawn shop. I pull up and I'm stopping at a, a light and I see these guys running out with the gun and uh, they they got a bunch of shit in their hands. And there was a lot of people around the area. So I jumped on my vehicle and I tackled the guy with a gun and took him to the ground and the cops were like right there. They grabbed him too and they cuffed him up. This is one part of Mickey's story I was able to verify. It happened pretty much exactly as he described it. I found an article about it in the South Florida Sun Sentinel. It quotes a local police spokesman thanking Mickey for his assistance. About seven years after that incident, Mickey was back in the Denver area. So it was the premiere of Batman. That's when, in 2012, a gunman walked into a movie theater in Aurora, just outside Denver and opened fire using a semi-automatic rifle. 12 people were killed and 70 were injured. The mass shooting made international news. The violence on the screen erupted in the theater. At first, witnesses thought the gunman was part of the show. He entered the debut of the Batman film Dark Knight Rises 
looking like the villain, the Joker, the gas mask, head-to-toe armor, and the eerie car. And it seems Mickey was there. And actually, I was going to the movie theater, but I was running a little bit behind, and I showed up as the last couple shots were bringing out, and I proceeded to help people out of the theater and help them get into ambulances and stuff like that. Mickey lived near the movie theater at the time. Several people told me Mickey had shown them pictures and video of him at the theater that evening. A week after the shooting, he also posted on Facebook about his experience, describing how he assisted the injured. So yeah, he appears to have been there. Mickey has never had much of a political identity, as far as I can tell. If he has any sort of politics, it's the politics of grievance. Everybody sucks. Everybody's out to get him. A brand of political nihilism, almost. So, look, the thing I look at with this is, I don't, I, I come from the 70s. Okay, I'm almost about fucking 50, okay? The thing I look at like this is, I have an old biker saying, which is called, fuck the three Ps. The politicians, the press, and the police. It's just the way it is, okay? The press has never fucking helped me. They ain't no fucking politics around me. And definitely fuck the police, because they don't fucking help me. A few years after the movie theater shooting, with the rise of the Islamic State, or ISIS, in Iraq and Syria, Mickey decides to join the fight. The all-American tough guy heads to the Middle East. Mickey says he flew to Iraq to volunteer as a foreign fighter with the Peshmerga, the Kurdish military force. According to my reporting, he also, around this time, started claiming Kurdish descent. In Iraq, Mickey says, the Kurds saved him from an otherwise aimless, and meaningless life. Yeah, I've always been the type of person when I grew up, I was the smallest kid in school. I always got picked on by bullies, so I kind of learned I had to stand up for myself. And I liked the Kurds because the fact was that they were outmanned, outgunned, outtrained, outsupplied, and all this. And they were the underdog. And they were kicking ass, you know, and they were actually, I come to learn later on really good people, you know, and that was something I could deal with, you know. So to me, I, I, I guess the best way I can say it is like, I was given a second chance in life. Mickey, in his telling, was a decorated fighter for the Peshmerga. And he says, he trained dozens of American Antifa activists in the Middle East in hand-to-hand combat, weapons, and explosives. In a video I have of Mickey, he pulls out his phone and shows a photo to the camera. Here I am with my captured flag of the Islamic State when I was in battle. Mickey was such an effective fighter, he claimed, that ISIS issued a bounty on his head. And some of his friends ratted him out to the bad guys. I've had people that I thought were my friends in Colorado with my information to terrorist groups, um, real terrorist groups. They leaked it to Dosh, that's what we call the Islamic State. Uh, they leaked it to other groups, what type of car I drove, what type of motorcycle I rode, where I hung out, all this shit. And literally leaked my information out. They tried to get a, what we call a fatwa, which is known as a death note or a death ransom on me. In Mickey's telling, if there are any ISIS fighters with the courage to try to take them out and collect that bounty, then well, come get some. So yeah, the death. The death shit was out there a lot. It doesn't bother me. Let me put it this way. I'm very well armed. I'm not going to say how, but I'm very well armed. So if 
and I am very well trained. Don't confuse my looks and my little bit of chugginess that I'm not prepared for any type of situation because I have been because I'm correct. I am very well trained and ready for any bullshit. By 2017, with a price on his head, Mickey had returned to Denver and began to tell everyone he met he was a representative of the Kurdish government. Mickey even claimed to have diplomatic immunity from his work with the Kurds, whom he credited with turning his life around. If you've ever seen a movie when somebody's life is a complete shit show where it's fucked up, and they go and they do something and their life changes and they become a new person, something happens to them, and all of a sudden they're a totally different person. It's kind of like what happened with me with the Kurds. And now, Mickey was back in the United States, inspired, and with a new mission. A mission he was going to put into action in Denver. More after the break. There is no need for the outside world because we are removed from it and apart from it and in our own universe. On the new podcast, The Turning, Room of Mirrors, we look beneath the delicate veneer of American ballet and the culture formed by its most influential figure, George Balanchine. There are not very many of us that actually grew up with Balanchine. It's like I grew up with Mozart. You could do no wrong. Like, he was a god. But what was the cost for the dancers who brought these ballets to life, where the lines between the professional and the personal were hazy and often crossed? to say, what are you looking at, dear? You can't see you, only I can see you. Most people in the ballet world are more interested in their experience of watching it than in the dancer's experience of executing it. Listen to The Turning Room of Mirrors on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Attention, Bachelor Nation. He's back. The man who hosted some of America's most dramatic TV moments returns with a brand new tell-all podcast. The most dramatic podcast ever with Chris Harrison. It's going to be difficult at times. It'll be fun. We'll push the envelope. But I promise you this. We have a lot to talk about. For two decades, Chris Harrison saw it all. And now he's sharing the things he can't unsee. I'm looking forward to getting this off my shoulders and repairing this, moving forward, and letting everybody care for me. What does Chris Harrison have to say now? You're going to want to find out. I have not spoken publicly for two years about this, and I have a lot of thoughts. I think about this every day. Truly, every day of my life, I think about this and what I want to say. Listen to the most dramatic podcast ever with Chris Harrison on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up, y'all? I'm Langston Kerman. Sometimes I'm on TV. I'm David Borden. I'm probably on TV right now. You like conspiracy theories? You want to bar people? You like comedy? If you said yes to all three, then we invite you to hang with us and talk about funny and scary conspiracy theories you may have learned from friends family and black twitter david and i are going to take a deep dive every week into the most exciting groundbreaking and sometimes problematic black conspiracy theories we cover silly theories like whether a girl snapped her neck doing a wing with it rock with it or more serious topics like big pharma and their ulterior motives for black body We've had amazing cast, notable guests like Brandon Kyle Goodman, Yamanika Saunders, Michelle Buteau, Sam J. Quinta Brunson, Eric Andre, and so many more. 
Those are some tasty blacks. New episodes are out every Tuesday. Many episodes out on Thursdays where we answer you, the listeners' conspiracy theories. Listen to My Mama Told Me on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After George Floyd's murder in 2020, Mickey started to attend the protests. He offered weapons training to anyone who expressed an interest. And by describing how he fought ISIS terrorists and had diplomatic immunity, he appeared, on first impressions, to be an important and legitimate guy, someone many of the racial justice activists thought they could trust. But not everyone. He's like uh, dressed often in like fatigues or, you know, more black black style, seemed to fly a marine flag it seems like but it didn't seem like he was the man that he claimed to be this is brian loma brian is widely known in the denver activist community for live streaming videos of the racial justice protests i do seem to remember that he was armed which you know kind of gave him a sense of having some credibility right he came off as like Maybe being a rook, but like really being like into the movement. And now that I say that out loud, that just kind of throws a red flag up in itself. Brian was live streaming on July 25th, 2020, during a rally for Elijah McClain. The young black man had been killed in Colorado the year before George Floyd was murdered in Minnesota. Some hold up signs reading, The People United will end racist police terror. I've been living in the world since 1981. This is one of the speakers at the event. And even back then, I remember when you couldn't be black and be walking up and down the same more Alameda without the funky-ass racist fucking police pulling you over and harassing you. The rhetoric at these rallies would get pretty heated, like that guy's. Foul language, the system is racist, fuck the police, that kind of stuff. Mickey is at this demonstration. And this is right around the time that he first meets Zeb Hall. After this rally, the demonstrators march through the city. Brian Loma is live streaming the whole thing. The demonstrators, numbering in the hundreds, then pour on Interstate 225, a major highway that creates a partial perimeter road around Denver. They block all the traffic on both sides of the interstate and then start confronting the drivers they had trapped. Some smile and laugh and voice support for the demonstrators. Other drivers aren't as amused, like one Brian Loma confronts. Hey, how you doing there, But this demonstration quickly spirals out of control. On the other side of the interstate from where Brian Loma is filming, a blue Jeep Wrangler speeds through the protesters, nearly hitting several. Another demonstrator films the incident as it happens. You can hear gunshots ring out. One of the demonstrators appears to have fired on the Jeep as it speeds through the crowd. The scene then becomes chaotic. The hundreds of demonstrators then leave the interstate and congregate in the surrounding city streets, choking them off the traffic. At one point, the crowd stops. A black man with a bullhorn in his hand and an assault rifle slung over his shoulder addresses the protesters. This is scary work. This is what it looks like to organize against racism 
Hundreds of people advance up the street. Brian Loma turns his camera to the front of the parade of demonstrators. Right up front, as if clearing the way for the protesters, is a slowly moving silver hearse. It's Mickey, up front and in charge of the protest. Zeb is there as well. About a half hour later, Zeb walks up to Brian Loma and his camera. Zeb's wearing a white construction-style hard hat, and he has a respirator mask hanging around his neck. He's angry that the Jeep drove dangerously through the crowd, and Zeb suggests that the Jeep's driver should have been stopped earlier, in a gunpoint. There should have been people in the back with rifles to fucking make sure that goddamn car didn't get up there. It's all fuckery at this point. Then Zeb says something else. I believe it is necessary. Armed resistance is necessary. That's where Zeb's mind appears to be when he and Mickey first start talking about guns and training. Armed resistance is necessary. So in August 2020, Zeb invites Mickey to his apartment. He wants to talk about the future, how to inspire more people to participate in the demonstrations, how to get people stirred up, and how to prepare them for possible conflicts with police officers outfitted by stormtroopers. Zeb explains to Mickey that he believes the racial justice protests need to show people that the American economic system is fundamentally unfair to black people and other minorities. And in Zeb's view, the pandemic has made the inequities worse. The whole nation is a powder keg, ready to explode. Denver's brutally cold winter is a few months away. People will spend the months indoors, quarantined by the pandemic and the freezing temperatures. And by the time spring arrives, Zeb predicts that violence will break out all over. That's going to be the turning point. It's cold, it's dark, it's raining, and I'm hurting, and there will be suicide. But when it's spring comes, they are angry. It's hot, people act the fuck up when it's hot. So the spring comes, and it happens. So that's when you would step in to make shit pop off. Mickey encourages Zeb's violence. By then, he says, you'd make shit pop off then, right? But Zeb is weirdly all over the place. Talking about violence, yeah, but unclear on his timeline and seeming to talk in a way that suggests he wants others to do the violence. People are already agitated and working with the press. A lot of them are going to be evicted. Over this course of time, it gets them off more and more and more. And as soon as summer comes, uh, spring, the first few hot weeks, there's going to be so much fear and anger because look at it, these distractions aren't going to come back on sports, concerts, maybe. They're not going to come back. They're going to be happy. But that's why we have to get them out of still mentally awake. Right. Zeb explains to Mickey that he thinks violence is the answer. The only way the system will change is through force. But he believes that he can inspire that violence through speeches and propaganda at public events. I think it's propaganda changing. You know, you give me speeches, but actually have other speeches. But not even just people are going to speak. Someone like you just tell the truth, you know, what's going on. And over this course of six to eight months, it looks very angry. And if it happens here in little fucking Denver, it will place because over that six to eight months, people will be angry when they burn shit like that. Mickey then pushes up for more specifics. How are things going to get violent? 
I see your point of view. You know, burn fucking villains down and kill the rich. I, I understand that. I, I, I feel your point of view. I do. It's just, you know, I don't know how you feel about doing it. Zeb doesn't have much of an answer. He talks about propaganda and speeches and inspiring people to get so angry they'll turn their violence. Then Zeb tells Mickey, I need your help doing this stuff. Also, you're really going to I need your help doing this stuff, he says. And I also need to learn how to fight. Guerrilla warfare. Zeb then tells Mickey that he also wants to learn how to mentally manipulate people. And that's when Mickey drifts into absurdity. And Zeb, so enamored with Mickey, doesn't even notice. Brain manipulation? Brain manipulation is that's something you can't go to school for. You have to learn it. And it's like a Jedi mind skill. It's like a Jedi mind skill. That's what Mickey says. These aren't the droids you're looking for. And then Mickey goes all Obi-Wan Kenobi on his young Padawan. You have to basically take the subject and make them agree with you gently in a way that makes them feel comfortable and not. You want it to be a smooth transition. You want to be rough. The rough that breaks down in the best. So you just want to plug them into it. So Mickey not only fought ISIS fighters, and trained violent Antifa activists. He also performed Jedi mind tricks. I was actually really good at it when I was in the Kirsch military. I didn't do it towards equipment, it towards terrorist things. I was interrogating shit like that. But that you can be shown how to do. You just have to, it's something you have to train yourself to do. You know what I mean? Mickey then suggests to Zeb that he could introduce him to his guy, an outlaw biker and former Special Forces fighter. Let me explain something. He's an old fuck around type of guy. He does not play fucking games. But if you're wanting to learn how to blow shit up, drop people, and build the fucking numbers and do all that shit that you want to do, he's the guy you want to go to. I mean, I can teach you all that shit. Absolutely. I got the problem teaching it too. And that would be, he would be your guy. Mickey says his guy is overseas, and he can't train Zeb right away. But Zeb says he doesn't want to wait, and would prefer for Mickey to train him. Mickey, though, says there's one issue with training Zeb. It has to do with this position as a Kurdish diplomat. They understand that they're like diplomats. They understand that they're those weapons I can't use because it turns back to the first you know, ballistic shit. So I can't use that shit. I need to be able to get some weapons that are not mine. I can't buy them because I don't feel If Zeb wants weapons training, Mickey tells him, Zeb needs to buy him a gun. And I'm making no endorsement of the tortured logic here. But this is basically what Mickey is saying. He has guns, yeah, but they're registered to him as a Kurdish diplomat, and so he can't use them to train Zeb. And he's also a convicted felon, which means he can't buy a gun legally in the United States, even though he has guns. So Zeb would need to buy him a gun. Zeb doesn't commit to anything, buying guns, training, none of it. At the end of his meeting with Mickey, he returns where he was at the beginning of the meeting, talking about giving speeches. I need help doing my speeches. 
I need help doing my speeches, Zeb says. Yeah. Not very good with speech and words. Yeah. Pulling triggers and blowing shit up, I'm good. Mickey says he's not there to get speeches. He's in the pulling triggers and blowing shit up. That's what he says. And soon, Zeb learns that Mickey has made other friends among Denver's racial justice activists. And they appear to be more enthusiastic about, to borrow Mickey's words, pulling triggers and blowing shit up. There is no need for the outside world because we are removed from it and apart from it and in our own universe. On the new podcast, The Turning, Room of Mirrors, we look beneath the delicate veneer of American ballet and the culture formed by its most influential figure, George Balanchine. There are not very many of us that actually grew up with Balanchine. It's like I grew up with Mozart. You could do no wrong. Like, he was a god. But what was the cost for the dancers who brought these ballets to life, where the lines between the professional and the personal were hazy and often crossed? used to say, what are you looking at, dear? You can't see me, only I can see you. Most people in the ballet world are more interested in their experience of watching it than in the dancer's experience of executing it. Listen to The Turning Room of Mirrors on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Attention, Bachelor Nation. He's back. The man who hosted some of America's most dramatic TV moments returns with a brand new tell-all podcast. The most dramatic podcast ever with Chris Harrison. It's going to be difficult at times. It'll be funny. We'll push the envelope. I promise you this. We have a lot to talk about. For two decades, Chris Harrison saw it all. And now he's sharing the things he can't unsee. I'm looking forward to getting this off my shoulders and preparing this, moving forward, and letting everybody hear for me. What does Chris Harrison have to say now? You're going to want to find out. I have not spoken publicly for two years about this, and I have a lot of thoughts. I think about this every day. Truly, every day of my life, I think about this and what I want to say. Listen to the most dramatic podcast ever with Chris Harrison on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up, y'all? I'm Lake Snake Kermit. Sometimes I'm on TV. I'm David Borden. I'm probably on TV right now. You like conspiracy theories? You like comedy? Would you send yes to all three and we invite you to hang with us to talk about funny and scary conspiracy theories David and I are going to take a deep dive every week into the most exciting, groundbreaking, and sometimes problematic black conspiracy theories. We cover silly theories like whether a girl snaps her neck doing the lean with it rock with or more serious topics like big pharma and their posterior motives for black lives. We've had amazing cast notable guests like Randy Kyle Goodman, Dominica Saunders, Michelle Buteau, Sam J. Quinkerberg, and Eric Andre, and so many more. Those are some tasty blacks. New episodes are on every Tuesday, many episodes out on Thursdays, where we answer you, the listeners, conspiracy. Listen to My Mama Told Me on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. He was just hanging out. He seemed to be kind of by himself. Yeah. This is Brett Smith, 
Brett is a military veteran and a member of the Young Democratic Socialists of America, or YDSA. These commercials kill. And so when my uh, uh, commercials are killing, they heard about him. They seen him around. He's describing uh, seeing Mickey at the demonstrations in Denver for the first time. And so that's when they made my initial contact with him, like on our behalf. And so, yeah, he started hanging out and what have you at kind of our, our I don't know, say base camps as a friend's apartment and what have you. I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of just how it started out. So the YDSA is the youth branch of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. DSA isn't a political party, but instead a member organization. Here's one of their promo videos. The last two years have been rough. We've been hit with crisis after crisis, and everywhere working class people are being pushed out of politics. Right at the moment that we need to fight like hell, the bosses and billionaires and their politicians and police are sacrificing us during this pandemic. DSA and YDSA groups are particularly active in the racial justice protest during the summer of 2020. They start using the platforms these demonstrations create to promote their socialist political agenda. This is something that happens quickly to all these demonstrations that the news media refer to as Black Lives Matter. While they started as ways to protest police brutality and raise awareness of the deaths of unarmed black men and women at the hands of police, the message splinters as more people and more groups participate. People are showing up with signs for communism, socialism, LGBTQ+, just about any cause aligned with left-wing activism. Trey Quinn, the black nationalist we met earlier, who's one of the organizers of the Denver demonstrations, he refers to these as affinity groups. The affinity groups, in Trey's opinion, are rowdy and destructive, and they're instigating some of the most brutal responses by local police. That's when you started seeing these affinity groups of all these people calling themselves Antifa or some sort of anti-fascist type guy or something like that. That's when you start seeing them surround police stations and throwing rocks in there. That's when you start seeing the cops have to tear gas whole areas of Denver. These demonstrators meant well in Trey's view, but no one was there to discourage some of their bad ideas. These things all happened because there was nobody there to take a person who's already radical and direct them in a position where they are now being ineffective with. Now they're just off the leash, and that's what literally what happened. It got worse. The friends that Mickey made in YDSA are named Honor and Aiden. They're among the most active members at the time. These affinity groups are pushing some of the demonstrations beyond what the police accountability activists had initially desired. An example of this happens in Fort Collins, but an hour north of Denver on August 8, 2020. A demonstration for Back the Blue a pro-police movement created in reaction to Black Lives Matter had been organized near the local police station. And Mickey, Honor, Hayden, and other members of Denver area affinity groups go to protest against that demonstration. As you might predict, the situation devolves quickly into a brawl with back the blue activists and left-wing protesters falling into dog piles in a grassy ditch as they throw punches and hurl frozen water bottles at each other. One of the pro-police activists says, keep punching each other in the face, but don't shoot anybody. At one point, a back-the-blue activist, his face hidden by an American flag mask, takes a flagpole, old glory wrapped around it, and transforms it into a spear, 
jamming it into the body of one of the left-wing protesters. The video circulates widely on social media and in right-wing media as an example of the dangers of Antifa, which is odd because the left-wing protesters, the so-called Antifa guys, they got their asses kicked. Back in Denver, Zeb Hall hears about what went down in Fort Collins on social media. Then, Mickey gets in touch with him. These protesters got the shit beat out of him, which it was honoring them. You know, they were the ones that got the shit beat out of him. And he, Mickey called me and says, hey, my crew got their ass whipped, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know much about it. And he says, you know, you're going to do the speech. Why don't you say something about him? Zeb is supposed to give a speech at a demonstration that evening. Mickey wants him to say something about Fort Collins. I was like, all right, cool, I'll do it. You know, because at that time, I didn't know enough about him. So I went to take a speech for these cats. I looked at the news, yeah, they got fucked up. After that point, Zeb sees Honor, Aiden, and other YDSA members hanging around Mickey. Mickey has somehow turned them into his personal surveillance group. They were doing surveillance at even some of the events. He made them think like they were little operative soldiers and whatnot. They had these headphones on. They show up at events. They talk to different leaders and, you know, Hey, we're medics, we'll look out for you, you know, who are you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm pretty sure they exchanged the information and gave it back to him. Gave it back to him, as in gave the information back to Mickey. The YDSA activists are Mickey's intelligence unit, collecting information from the other protesters and reporting back to Mickey, who has come to position himself as a leader of the racial justice movement in Denver. He's giving directions and gaining the trust of many of the demonstrators. There's just one problem and it's a troubling one a the information the ydsa activists collect doesn't stop with mickey mickey is providing that information to someone else someone much more powerful okay it's august 28 2020 at 4 2 p.m special agent scott dahlstrom with special agent uh, Byron Mitchell, uh, CHS, for meet with uh, Zodias Hall. That's in the next episode. This is Trojan Hurts, Season 1 of Alphabet Boys. Alphabet Boys is a production of Western Sound and iHeart Podcasts. The show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Trevor Aronson. For more information about the series, or to drop us a tip, head to our website, alphabetboys.xyz.